0: going to read from verse 1 of Hosea 6 through to chapter 7 verse 7. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 1 through to chapter 7 and verse 7. So let us again hear the word of God this evening. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely The faith breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire. From the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes uh, became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Well, uh, let's pray, shall we? Let's ask for help as we look at this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving what you said through Hosea. And as we look at what he said to the people of Israel all those years ago, we pray that You would help us understand tonight what it means for us. We in this generation, Lord, what are you saying to us? Help us to hear. Help us to apply these things to ourselves and to our church. That we may make adjustments. That we might, where we need to, Lord, turn back to you. And live as we ought to, as the bride of Christ. We ask for your help in this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last year in September, when we began our series in Hosea, I mentioned that one of the things unique to this prophet was how he used metaphors and how he used word plays to describe how Israel had become so unfaithful to the Lord. So, for example, Israel is the unfaithful wife who repeatedly plays the whore. We saw Hosea use that rather strong language again and again as he illustrated the relationship between Israel and the Lord in his own marriage to Gomer, the wife of whoredom. Strong words. Well, here in chapter 6 and 7, we see that use of metaphors Used repeatedly by Hosea. It's a rather concentrated block of metaphors in these two chapters where Hosea uses uh, metaphors and wordplays to again describe what Israel's unfaithfulness looks like. There are six metaphors in these two chapters that Hosea uses to say, Israel, from the way you're behaving. You're just like this. You're just like that. We looked at the first one last time and we studied verses 1 to 6. We saw in verse 4 how God describes Israel's love for him. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. It all looks great as it were to begin with, but in no time at all, it's gone. Making grand promises, turning to religion, and looking so fervent and passionate in their worship of God, but in no time at all, it's gone. Just like the morning mist. This evening, we're going to look at two more of the next five metaphors. God willing, we'll look at three more next week not only to understand and appreciate this passage, but also as we would do with all Scripture. We want to hold up this passage as like a mirror to ourselves and to ask ourselves the question, is there anything of this in me? Don't forget how throughout all of this exposure, remains the yearning heart of God. We must never forget him. He is the the husband who longs for his wife to come back and settle down with him and know his love for her, uh, his abiding, covenant, faithful love for her that runs throughout Hosea, a God who longs to restore and heal and redeem his people. But we look at Israel's unfaithfulness primarily, and what does that look like? Well, the first metaphor we come across, first of all, they're like Adam, verse 7. They're like Adam in all his unfaithfulness. This first metaphor, it covers verses 7 to 10, and as we saw before, the finger is particularly pointed towards the priests. Uh, The priests who should have known better. Uh, The priests who were divinely appointed. They were responsible for offering up the sacrifices for sin that would restore the relationship between God and his people. And yet how are they described here? Well, verse 9 summarizes for us as robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together, they murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy, or as the NIV says, shameful crimes, which opens the door to a lot of stuff. It's almost unbelievable to imagine the priests of God behaving like this, ambushing travelers, Would you believe it on the road to Shechem? But this is where Israel has come to spiritually. One commentator describes it like this. The road from Samaria to Bethel, uh, which was the chief seat of the golden calf worship, the road led through Shechem. And pilgrims coming from or going to Bethel were murdered, raped, outraged by gangs of priests. It's hard to imagine this, isn't it? How Levitical priests could do this sort of thing. I guess wanting to think the best, possibly the term priests that's used here is used in a very sort of loose way. If you remember how, who the priests were in this northern kingdom of Israel… Remember the, the, the one kingdom had split into two after Solomon. Rehoboam reigned in Judah and uh, Jeroboam reigned in Israel, the northern part. Well, 1 Kings 12:31 says, Jeroboam made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. Hosea is primarily preaching to northern Israel. 2 Chronicles 11, 13 expands that verse further for us. It says, The priests and the Levites who were in all Israel presented themselves to him, to King Rehoboam down in Judah, from all places where they lived. For the Levites left their common lands and their holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem because... Jeroboam down here in Judah, Jeroboam and his sons, sorry, up there. <laughs> Jeroboam's up there. Rehoboam's down here. Rehoboam reigned, that's how I always remember it by. Rehoboam reigned in Jerusalem. Jeroboam was up the top there in Israel. Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests for the high places and the goat idols and for the calves. That he had made. So these bandit priests weren't Levitical priests, but certainly these priests, in inverted commas, wildly inverted commas, having turned from God, the living God, they have now turned on people, on others. And they've turned with violence, they've turned with bloodshed. And how does God view this? Well, verse seven, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Which immediately takes us back to Genesis, doesn't it? It Takes us back to the garden where Adam transgressed or he overstepped the covenant that God made with him there. Genesis two, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That was a covenant that God made with Adam. That covenant of works. That if he obeyed it he would presumably live on. Adam and Eve would live on forever. Happily. In the garden of Eden. They would have lived on in that close and personal covenant and eternal fellowship with God if they had kept the covenant. And if he transgressed the covenant, then he would die, which is sadly what they did. They went beyond what God said they could do. And from that one man's sin, death then entered into God's creation. Hosea links that same unfaithfulness with what Israel is doing. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. And now the close and personal fellowship that Israel ought to have had with their God, with their husband, that's the context of all of Hosea, is now ruined. It's spoiled because of their unfaithfulness. But there's another word play here. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. You see, as well as the person Adam, there was also the place called Adam. That was near Shechem. It was in the territory of Gilead. You read of it in Joshua 3, 16. As you read that passage, you see when uh, uh, Joshua was leading the Israelites across the Jordan River into the Promised Land, it says that God stopped the waters of the Jordan, and they heaped up at Adam. Well, verses eight and nine here, they show the unfaithfulness of Israel heap up at Adam. Between Gilead, the city of evildoers, stained with footprints of blood, and these priestly highwaymen, pillaging and murdering travelers. And again, we have to ask the question, how does God view all of this? Well, we see in verse 10, it's a horrible thing, a horrible thing of whoredom and defilement. Yes, what it is that they're doing is in itself terrible enough, but it's this underlying spirit of unfaithfulness. They have an unfaithful heart that burdens their husband, the Lord, the most. Why would they want to go beyond the boundary of the covenant? When, like with Adam, when God had promised them so much blessing, God had covenanted to love them, to be in fellowship with them, God had covenanted to provide for them and to protect them, they were his precious people. Why would they choose to break that? If not because of this unfaithful, defiled heart within them. That's probably the greatest grieving You and I would cause the Holy Spirit when, as believers, we sin against God. It's not so much that, it's not so much what it is that we did when we sinned. Obviously, the impact of sin can be terrible. Some sin can be absolutely tragic and damaging. But it's the fact that, as believers, we know that we grieve a loving God a God who has covenanted to save us. We know this. We know this God that we sin against, a God who has chosen, who has proven his love for us in Jesus, his Son. I mean, it's not an abusive husband, as it were, that we're sinning against, but it's our Lord. It's our Father, our Lord, who has a faithful husband, whose steadfast love endures forever. A God who is willing to forgive us. I came across the story recently of a lady called Jill Price. Uh, She's very unique throughout the world. Apparently there's only about a hundred people in the world who have this rare disorder of sorts. She was born with a condition called hyperthymesia. It's the ability to remember in extraordinary detail everything that has ever happened to her. Apparently she can remember since she was age 12. But she can replay in her mind the exact details of any event she has ever experienced in her life. So you give her a date and she'll tell you exactly everything that happened on that day. All the details that she went through. So, if you were playing Trivial Pursuit, get Jill on your team. If you were a pub quiz, get Jill on your team. She can remember everything. And yet on the negative side, she says she can't forget those moments of life where she was criticised where she experienced loss, or where she did something that she deeply regretted. She can never forget them. And she replays those scenes in her head over and over again. Now, our God, in the context of Hosea, our husband is omniscient. He is one who knows everything who understands everything and yet this one we grieve against, this one we discover in Isaiah, this loving God chooses to forget sin. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions and remembers your sins no more. Like Adam, we sin against a good and faithful God. A God who has never once failed us in any of his covenant promises to us. And who even now promises forgiveness. Who even now promises the forgetting of our sin if we turn back. If we truly return to him as in verse 1. If we truly set out to know this God personally and come home to him, he will truly forgive us and choose to remember our sins no more. The second metaphor covers uh, chapter 6 verse 11 through to chapter 7 verse 7. And it's a heated oven. A heated oven, verse 4 in verse 6, and in this particular passage, this second metaphor is particularly pointed towards the king, uh, towards the princes of Israel, to those in authority over the land. Do you see again, though, this longing of the Lord, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, when I would heal Israel. Even the last verse of the previous chapter, when I would restore the fortunes of my people. These metaphors are uncomfortable, they're fairly grim, they're even wearisome paragraphs of scripture, but throughout them runs this golden thread of God's heart. Israel's heart's rotten and it's desperately wicked as Jeremiah describes it, but God's heart is full of compassion when he sees his people. I long to heal them. I long to restore their fortunes. It's what he longs to do, and yet as he draws near to them, he cannot restore them. He cannot forget their sins because all he hears, sorry, he he doesn't hear prayers of confession. He doesn't see hearts of humility and contrition. What does he see when I would heal Israel? The iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. Verse 2, they do not consider or they don't realize that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. The picture we get here is of Israel's behavior becoming normal for them. Their way of life, their sinful way of life, had become so socially acceptable, they thought nothing of it. Their unfaithfulness had become so ingrained, they felt nothing that might convict them that they were doing wrong. And so they may have forgotten their sin, but the Lord hadn't yet, the Lord couldn't yet, until they acknowledged it and repented of it. Until they had done that, then there would be no healing, there would be no restoring, there would be no forgetting. That's why, friends, it's important that, as they say, we keep a short account with God, that sin doesn't become normal in our life because we dismiss it and just plot on living like that. We regularly need to confess our sin to God so that unconfessed sin doesn't accumulate. For, as it were, spiritual scar tissue to grow up and build up and harden over our conscience, numb our affections towards God. Because that sort of quality of spiritual experience will only hinder our worship of God. It'll dampen our fellowship with other believers. It'll interfere with our effectiveness in Christian ministry and life. It needs to be dealt with, it needs to be washed away. don't know if you've noticed but someone has recently cleared out all the junk from the church hoover. don't know if you've noticed that uh, to some degree it was working it was sucking up crumbs and stuff off the floor, but uh, someone opened the Hoover and removed all the gunk that had built up in the tubes and in the filter, and now the Hoover is working brilliantly, it's working far better, it's now doing what it was advert. why we bought it in the first place. This brilliant, strong hoover, it's so powerful, apparently, it even lifts the tiles off the floor. It's now working so effectively. Friends, don't allow unconfessed sin to clog up your life for Jesus. We need to regularly open up ourselves before him. Even daily take time to wait on the Lord and ask him, As the psalmist does, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. But what's this got to do with a heated oven? Well, these verses here in Hosea 7, they actually relate to the historical narrative in 2 Kings 15. It's, it's just one chapter and yet within that one chapter you, you read of the series of kings and rulers that reigned over northern Israel. It's a series of assassinations. Uh, for example, King Zechariah was assassinated by Shalom who was then assassinated by Menahem. Menahem reigned for ten years and then his son, Pekahiah reigned after him until he was assassinated by Pekah. Pekah brought with him 50 men from Gilead, the place of bloodshed, verse 8 of chapter 6. But it's this series, you see, of assassinations that verse 7 summarizes. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen and none of them calls upon me. Michael Bentley has written a commentary on Hosea, and he describes how ovens operated in those days. Apparently, an oven would normally be lit the night before you would use it. And so, as you lit the fire, and the fire began to burn, you would deliberately dampen it down. You would force it, to burn slowly and to smolder slowly through the night because that smoldering then got the oven hotter and hotter and hotter until the morning when you let it go and it would blaze and you begin to to cook then on this oven. That's the picture that Hosea gives of these people. The hearts of the leaders described here, verse 6, with hearts like an oven, they approach Their king with intrigue, all night their anger smolders and in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. That's the picture we have here of the unfaithfulness of Israel. These assassins are people who have gathered around the king. And there they are, verse 5, seemingly getting drunk together and in their drunkenness, it's fueling their wickedness, it's fueling their burning passions and slowly and surely, but they're like an oven, their anger is rising, their jealousy is burning, their resentment is smoldering more and more through the night and then it breaks out and they assassinate their king. It's the picture that Hosea gives us. And obviously the king's a fool to have such people around him but the people having gathered around the king give the impression of supporting him. This is the, the kind of unfaithfulness that we see in Israel. They surround him in support of him drinking with him to then stab him in the back and they do it for their own position their own political repositioning. So again it's a It's another demonstration of what unfaithfulness looks like when a country who has known the Lord turns away from the Lord and is led by such a bunch. They experience this extended period of political instability. They experience this period of political corruption at the very top of society. And through it all, if you remember how a king was meant to make his own copy of the Bible and read it every day and so forth and call on the Lord and uh, represent God as the leader of his people, look at the end of verse 7, none of them calls upon me. None of them are looking to the Lord for help. None of them are looking at the situation of their nation and crying out to God to intervene and bring stability and healing and restoration to their country. They just press on doing the same thing over and over and over again and wondering why are we in such a mess as we are? In modern day language, they would say, well, let's form a committee and just throw more money at it. Nobody seeks God. Nobody asks him what he thinks. And so whilst the leaders, their kings, their princes drink and turn on one another, the covenant people of God fall deeper and deeper into sin. Think of Ecclesiastes 10, verse 16. Woe to you, O land, whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Some of those people who became king were just servants. They weren't part of the royal family. They were army generals or somebody like that. They they weren't chosen by God and positioned by God. They made themselves kings. Woe to you when you have such a king. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at a proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. So we close applying this to ourselves. We are reminded to watch our own hearts, to watch out when our own hearts slowly burn, whether it's burning with lust or with pride, when it smolders with bitterness, when there's a slowly growing fire of anger within us. And we could use other words to describe, but you know what that feels like. It's internal. And we nurse it and we nurse it and we pour more oil onto it. We throw more wood onto it. We, we make it burn brighter by dwelling on it. And we're reminded here to deal with it, to not let it grow hotter and hotter and then burst out on someone. Isn't it so easy to fire a flame of a few words onto someone? It's like the devil, isn't it? Throwing those flaming darts. They come out of our mouths sometimes, and we wonder, where did that come from? Well, it came from a smoldering heart, you see. You nursed it and you encourage it rather than putting it out. Dealing with it. Deal with it quickly with prayer maybe by fleeing a certain situation, maybe by looking for a distraction of sorts, but, but guard our hearts against such ungodly passions. And then finally, surely this second metaphor also calls us to pray for those in authority over us, that we might have godly leaders. We have a general election coming up soon. I'm sure we'll be saying more about that when it gets nearer. But let's be praying now that our leaders would not be like this, who just sit around all day getting drunk. That's an exaggeration, of course, but it's the heart you see. It's the character you see. We want as much as possible men and women who will be good for our nation, good for all of us, whether we're a Christian or not a Christian, but who will be good for those who sit under their authority. Think of 1 Timothy 2 verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. May God help us then see something maybe of ourselves in these two metaphors and see what unfaithfulness looks like. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. And Thank you that your word is a mirror to us and Lord we pray that Lord where you see in us that which displeases you, that which grieves you, that Lord you would help us to recognize that and agree with you and deal with it. We thank you that you are a God who chooses to forgive and to forget. Thank you, Lord, that you do that now because of Jesus, because of the Lord Jesus who died on that cross to to bring into being those new covenant promises for us. So we pray, Lord, again, that forgive us when we sin against you. Forgive us when we forget you, Lord. And help us to deal with these things. Help us to catch them early to remember you and your covenant love to us. Father in heaven, hear our prayers. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you, Lord, for the abundance of love and mercy and grace towards us. We thank you that we have Jesus, and we pray all of this in his name. Amen.